Let's pray. Father, as we come today, we, we have many things to thank you for. Um, but all, a lot of us have difficulties today. Whether it's a medical diagnosis or grief from present day, grief from the past, worries about the future. God, many of us come here today with difficulty and we thank you that when we read through the prayers of the, I thank you when we, I read through the prayers of the Bible, they give space to bring those difficulties to you. Those who deal with slander, those who deal with the harsh and hurtful words of family members and of friends, the accusations come in. Your word gives us the space to bring those before you and gives us hope because you are the judge that we can trust. Many of us come here today trying to figure out how do we manage our lives? How do we fix these things? How, do, how can we get through this? And so today I pray, God, that you would show yourself to our hearts as a judge who always does what is right so that we can offload all of those things that we take on, all of the responsibilities that we take for ourselves to fix the world and to fix ourselves, to fix our families, to try to control and provide for the future. God, I, I pray that today that you would show yourself to us through your word and through the songs, through, through our prayers, through your people, that you are a judge of all the earth and you will always do what is right. And so we today can be unburdened of all the burdens that we came in here with today. That we can be unburdened of the bitterness, of the anger, of the unforgiveness that we can so easily carry, that I can so easily carry through life. God, I pray today that, we, that I would rejoice in you, that we would rejoice in you, that your people would, we would be convinced that you are calling us to joy, not to just manage our way through life, not to just settle, grin and bear it. Life is... Life is like that. We can easily say to ourselves, and I pray, God, that today, that through your word, you would declare to our hearts that you are calling us to joy, not happiness, not superficial, shallow things, but a deep-seated joy that is coming one day that carries us through our trials. God, I pray that today we would not just have joy, but that we would rejoice in you, that we would rejoice that you are the king of all the earth, and that since all of your ways are good, that you intend good for us, that your promises will come true. I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in you and you would banish all of Satan's doubts and accusations he brings to our mind that interrupts that. For those that deal with shame and guilt over the past, God, I pray that you would cause us to rejoice in you because you justify sinners apart from our deeds, but through faith in Jesus only. God, I pray today that we, that those, that many of us here and in this church would, would find a safe refuge in you today, that we would take refuge in you, that those that are battling insurmountable medical problems, they've heard bad news from the doctor and they, they don't even know if they can say it. God, I pray today that you would be a safe refuge for them. God, I pray for those that right now do not know where the money is going to come from. For these next bills, for these next weeks, for these next months, God, I pray that you would be a safe refuge this morning. That you would remind 
them that just as you clothe the flowers of the field and just as you feed the birds of the air, that you would remind them that you will clothe and feed and provide. God, I pray for those whose grief is so heavy today. I pray that you would be a safe refuge this morning. And I I pray, God, that you would ultimately be the glory of our lives, not our plans and not our accomplishments and not our successes and not how well we've done, but I pray that the glory of our hearts would be you, the king of the earth, in Jesus' name. Until recently, I didn't really know very my family history very far back. You see, my, my great-grandpa on one side of the family um, was uh, an immigrant, came from Croatia. And the other side of the family, my, uh, my grandpa on that side, he was born in Indian Territory before the state became Oklahoma. But I, I remember him and knew him, grew up going to his house, and it just felt like a very modern house with modern things. And that was about as far back as my family, that's the only thing I knew about my family history. My dad was adopted on the other side where my uh, great-grandpa came from Croatia, and so I really kind of knew nothing about my family going very far back. I know I've talked to a number of you, and you can tell stories going back you know, into the 1800s and some into the 1700s. Our church has a history going back into the 1800s, and I was like, my family history seems like it stopped in about like 1905, kind of like as far as I knew. You know, Grandpa, I remember his, his truck that he had, and his job was making engines, uh, machines, and pumps for the oil industry, and so he had, felt like he had a really modern kind of a job. But recently, I started to find out that uh, some of the story of my great-grandpa and what it was, what was normally like for an immigrant in the early 1900s, coming especially over from Europe, where conditions were incredibly. And so, as I can best I can piece together, Eastern Europe, Croatia or Yugoslavia was what it was called when I was a kid. They uh, the, the conditions were so bad, farming was so bad that young men who wanted to have any kind of a future would would buy a ticket and head to the United States and take the worst of the worst kinds of jobs. I found my, grandpa, my great-grandpa's obituary recently, and I knew he had died of black lung, but yes, he had been a member of the United Mine Workers Union. And so he, as, I was always like, why did grandpa come over here and his wife come over separately? He wasn't married. I'm like, I, nobody knows. You know, she, she never learned English. As far as I know, I'm not sure he ever learned English either. But he came over, took the worst job he could find that ended up killing him. Uh, but his sons and his daughter ended up living a modern life, living into the 2000s. You know, I remember those, my grandpa and my great uncles and my great aunt. I remember those kinds of stories. And I'm telling you that because I didn't really know what like pioneer meant. You know, I had heard of pioneer. I'd played the video game Oregon Trail. If you guys were ever into Oregon Trail, if you, I did learn if you shoot all of the buffalo at the beginning of the game, you have none later in the game and you starve to death. But so that was kind of my idea of what a pioneer was. And I just kind of thought that has nothing to do with my family. And then come to find out, and now that I understand more and more what pioneer life was like, I realized that my great-grandpa, whose story I do know more of, my great-grandpa Radosevich, who came as an immigrant trying to make a life, taking the worst job that is available because nobody else wants it, but hey, it pays better than life did back home. He kind of knew what it was like to go out into the unknown, 
probably he wrote a letter home and said, Mom, can you find me a wife and send her over to meet me in America and let's make a life together. And I I was thinking of that story this morning because we're in this series called Pioneer. And Abram, soon to be called Abraham, Abram is one of those pioneers like my great-grandpa, that's headed to something he cannot see and does not know. And so Abram becomes this model for us of like, what is it like to walk into the unknown? I imagine some of us here today have some unknowns that we're walking into. I imagine some have some decisions coming up where you go, I have no idea what's on the other side of this. Maybe it's taking a job that you really, you're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to end up. I don't know what's on the other side of this. I think this is good, but I've taken jobs before and they weren't so good. For some, it could be a medical diagnosis. And you go, I don't know what's out there on the other side of this. For some, it's whatever's going on at home. And you're like, God, I have no idea what's on the other side of this. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage that talks about what it means to walk with God on those frontier places where we are, God, what's out there and what are you doing on the other side of this? What does it mean to walk by faith into uncharted territory, uncharted land? Go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Just before this, Abram's nephew had been taken captive and Abram went on a rescue mission and then he was kind of at at the end of a successful rescue mission is confronted with the two kings and he rejects the king of Sodom and money and instead says only God is going to be my king and then this is this is where we pick up in Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 after this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision do not be afraid Abram I am your shield and your very great reward But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. 
in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open your word. May I preach it clearly. May we hear what you have to say so that we can respond to your plan and your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. This story, after Abram has expressed his loyalty to the Lord alone as his king, the Lord comes to Abram with a vision. There's kind of two visions that he has, two nights. And in the first one, the Lord says, after king of Sodom had had offered him treasure, the Lord says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But notice that Abram then goes, God, if you're going to be my reward, what could you give me? Because I do not have a child. God, I have nothing. Here I am, empty-handed. God, what are you going to give me? So then God gives him the, the first sign and takes him outside. The Lord has already promised that Abram's descendants will be as the sand on the seashore. The Lord has kind of clarified Sarah is going to be the, the, the wife, the woman through whom the promise comes. And so the Lord now takes Abram outside and says, look up at the stars. This is how many your offspring is going to be. God reveals to Abram, I am going to give you a son. You are going to have an heir. It's not Lot. We've seen that because Lot was sent away. We know that it's not, God, the Lord says, it's not going to be your servant, Eliezer. The Lord is clarifying for Abram, this is what my plan is. It's a son for you and descendants to come after you. Then verse uh, 5 the Lord says, okay, this is how many your offerings are. Verse 6, it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This becomes one of the more important verses in the Bible because Romans points to it. Uh, other verses in the Bible begin pointing to this moment where Abram, before the giving of the law, is declared righteous simply because he believes God. But we find that, that The Lord then gives him a second promise in verse 7, and the Lord says, I'm going to give you this land to possess it. So the Lord has said, I'm going to give you a son. And now the Lord says, and now I'm going to give you this land. And Abram says, but God, how can I know? I know you've said this, but God, how can I know that you're going to keep this promise to me? How can I know that this land is going to be for me? And so first, God has taken him outside and shown him the stars. And now the Lord says, bring me some animals. And so he brings all of the animals that are fit for sacrifice. And this is kind of strange because we don't necessarily do, well, not necessarily, we don't do this at all. He takes the animals and cuts them in half and then lays them out. Lays them out. It says that he's keeping all the birds of prey off of these animals. And so the scene as we imagine it is this bloody scene with large and small animals 
with a space in between them. Because at the time, covenant, what they would use a word, they would call it cutting a covenant rather than like simply making a covenant. Because what would happen in a covenant is normally, the, normally one party and the other party would each make promises. And then they would walk between the animals and say, if I break my promise to you, may this happen to me. That's the way covenants would normally work. Is that both, we, we see other covenants in the Bible where both parties make promises, but this is, a, this is a covenant where only God makes a promise in this covenant. But they're still cutting a covenant because God then walks between the two animals or between all of the animals. In effect, God is saying, Abram, if I do not keep my promise to you and to your family, may I be as these animals. May I be cut in half and destroyed like these animals. This very clear picture of God saying, Abram, here is the proof. I am making a promise to you by which I will myself die if I do not keep my promise. That's the kind of proof that I'm going to give to you, Abram. And so here in this story, where we see images of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, that's usually, we see it, especially in the book of Exodus through Deuteronomy, an image for the presence of God when fire appears. It is the fire of God that passes in between the animals, cutting a covenant where Abram makes no promises and God makes all of them. What we see in this story is that the Lord reveals his plans to Abram and then proves his promise to him. The Lord reveals his plan to Abram to give him a son and to give him descendants. He reveals his, his plan to Abram that he's going to show mercy on the land by giving them 400 years in their sin before he gives it to Abram's descendants. That's, that's what's happening when he says, the, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God says, Abram, I'm going to give you this land. Here's my plan. I'm going to give this land to you. But I'm going to give the Amorites many, many chances in mercy before I do that. We're not talking about people that tell a lie here or there. We're not, telling about, we're not talking about people who fudge on their taxes. These are people that sacrifice children in worship these are people that, uh, that did use prostitution in their worship. These are a corrupt and cruel people. And God says, I'm going to show 400 years of mercy, giving them a chance to repent before I give you this land. Before I give you this land, Abram. And so the Lord reveals his plan for goodness to Abram and his family. Reveals his patience in that. And then he proves his promises. So what I want to show you here today is that this passage is calling you and I to respond to God's plan and God's proof. Like he's calling Abram here, he's calling us to respond to God's plan and God's proof. I want to show you three applications from this. First, we must be clear about what God's revelation is. Note one of the most frequent repeated words here in chapter 15 is the word of the Lord came to Abram. 
This passage is filled with God said, God said, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is really critical for this moment in Abram's life and really for Israel's life because this is the agenda for the rest of the Bible. That God, when God's word comes, then, we, then Abram is dealing with God himself. This is critical for the story of the Bible because in the story of the Bible, it is the story of people responding to what God says. Not, well, this is what I think is wise. This is not what I, I feel like is a good thing for us to do. This is not an impression that I have. This, the word of the Lord, is a statement throughout the Bible. This is like a, a, a divine stamp of this is where we are dealing with God himself. And so then when Abram is declared righteous, it's because he believes God's word. The, we have to be clear that God, uh, how central God's word is to uh, the life of a pioneer. The life of somebody going into the unknown who is facing any number of obstacles. Any number of obstacles you may be facing this week. It's not... It's not a small thing that Abram is called to deal with the word of the Lord. He's given something rock solid to respond to, not an impression, not something just he's feeling in his gut. This is God's word, and, God, and Abram believes the Lord. That is where his righteousness comes from. That is going to be the place of confidence. That's going to be the place that Abram can put his feet when the world is uncertain. When he doesn't know what's out there, you see, Satan loves to imitate God's Word. He loves to distort it. We see it in the Bible when he'll, he'll change a few words. He'll challenge a few words. He'll twist it when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness. He twists it when he's tempting Eve in the garden. And so we have to be clear that Satan loves to imitate God's Word, distorting it. But Abram is a model for us of dealing with God's word and saying, it, it, my faith is going to be built on this is what God has said. Abram's righteousness comes from believing God's word and that is where ours comes from as well. That's where ours comes from as well. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, this is the central issue in Abram's life, is he is responding to God's plan in God's word, and that is the place of confidence and righteousness for him. And so for you and I, as walking into our own unknowns, we are called to Take God's word and say, this is God's word. I am going to believe it and put my feet here. I'm going, to, I'm going to rest in this as a rock solid place for me to live my life. That every good work God has called me to is not simply an impression that I have, a feeling that I have, but a response to this is the word of the Lord. Or else then we'll be left wondering, God, what are you up to? And how could I ever know? God's clear word, if when we live this life in the unknown, has, has, God's clear word has to be our authority. Because ultimately, our confidence and our righteousness will only come from dealing with God and His plans and His promises. Knowing God 
The word of the Lord has come, and so we can trust it. I want to show you the second application from this story. Is one, it is a call to you and I to respond to God's plan. You see, God has come and revealed his plan to Abram. I'm going to give you a son from your very body. Your, plan, your, your body is going to produce the child that I have promised you. He's already preserved Sarah. He's already clarified it's not Lot. He's already clarifying now that it's not Eleazar. He's like, this, this child is going to come from your body. This seed is going to come from you. Your family will number as the stars. He's already said your, your family will number as the sand on the, sea, on the seashore. And then Abram believes God's plan. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. When God has said, Abram, this is what I'm doing, and then this passage says that then Abram believed. You see, when we are clear about God's plan, then the choice that we have is will we believe him or not? Will we adjust it or not? Will we shade it or not? Will we say, okay, this is what you've called me to. This is what you've promised. I'm going to trust that you're going to do what you said and that your plan is going to come true. That your plan is going to come true. That you're going to take me where you say that you're going to take me. That you're, that you're going to do what you say you'll do, God. Will we believe God when he's clear about his plan? Romans chapter 4, verses 3 to 5 that Cheryl read earlier. N- names in describing Abram in his faith. It says, what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now to him who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. This is, God's plan is that those who believe are saved. And will we trust that plan? Will we say, okay, God, this is what you said. I'm going to trust that you meant it that I, and that that is where my salvation lies. You see, when God has revealed his plan here in a, to Abram, when God reveals his plan in Scripture that he saves not those who work for it, not those who behave, not those who avoid the big sins, But those who simply come and say, God, will you save me? Will we believe God that he saves us because of that? Or will we say, God, look at all the things I've done. Look at all the things I've not done. God, I'm not like the other sinners. God, I read my Bible and God, I do these things and I give to my church and I attend. God, I've done all of these things. Are you happy? God's plan in Scripture says no. It is those who return from sin and trust in Jesus only to save them. Not their good works. Not their giving, not their church attendance, not behaving better, not trying harder, but simply saying, God, I need a righteousness that's not my own. Maybe that's here, you here today, where you need to, for the first time, give up on saying, God, look at all the good works I've done. And you need to instead say, God, I am a sinner in need of a salvation from the outside. Will you do it? Maybe today is the day that you need to say, God, I am a sinner and I turn from that and I trust Jesus only to forgive me of my sin and I will follow him as my Lord and Savior only. If that's you, let today be the day of salvation for you where you, don't, where you stop pretending and say, God, I want your plan for my life. God, I want your righteousness. 
God, I'm going to believe you in the way that Abram believed you. The third application from this story is we are called to respond to God's proof. You see, in verse 8, Abram says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? Abram says, Abram has already been credited with righteousness. And so it seems that there's room in the Christian life to say, God, how do I know that your promises are going to come true? God, how can I know that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? And so I love the fact that Abram just says, God, how can I know? And then God proves it by cutting a covenant with Abram. Doing something incredibly physical with Abram. God had every right to say, just trust me. Can you just believe that I'm going to keep my promises to you? God had every right to say, Abram, how dare you? But instead, God says, get some animals. I'm going to make a binding one-way promise to you. I'm going to walk through the animals declaring to you and to the world, may I die before I break my promise to you. And so Abram gets the proof in this physical cutting of a covenant. And I, I can't help but think that, that God uses this cutting of a covenant as proof to Abram, pointing us to the day where instead of walking through the animals, he himself will be torn. Where he himself will die to prove his promises to his people. To make his promises to his people come true. In this moment, the animals die, but there will come a day when the Son of God himself will die as proof that God keeps his promises to save sinners, to bring them into his family, and to give them a hope and a future. And so this passage that calls Abraham to look at God's proof and believe calls us to look at Jesus and believe that God will keep his promises to us. And so today, I'm not sure what promises of God seem dim and doubtful in your life. I don't know what, God, where's your power in answering my prayers for my son and my daughter, my grandchild? God, where is your power to restore this marriage and w or wake it from the dead? God, where is your power to draw my child home? God, where is your power that would leave me alone like this? God, how could that have happened? And we say, God, how can I know? And here the Lord, I think, calls to us and points at the cross and says, here is proof that I will never leave you or forsake you, that I will always do good for you, and that I will, do, I will take the pain myself so that I can keep my promises to you. This, this today, you and I are called, and every day, I think we're called to look at the cross to see God's heart. J.D. Greer, in his book, Gospel Revolution, says, 
calls us to begin to say, I will measure God's heart by the cross and his power by the resurrection. I don't know about you, but when fear and anxiety and doubt and God, what are you doing comes in, it ends up that I have forgotten that God loves me so much that while I was still a sinner, he would die in my place. And how could I I think that the one who would die for me is not going to work good in every situation for me? including those moments where I felt forsaken. You see, I think today you and I are called with Abraham to look at the proof when the covenant is cut, when when the Son of God is sacrificed, we see the heart of God and the proof in the resurrection that God will keep His promises to us. And so I'm not sure what today looks like for you. I don't know what this week looks like. I don't know what the coming weeks look like. I've learned that there were seasons of my life where I felt like I could plan for months in advance. In the last year and a half, you guys have been, you guys and I have been together. We have no idea what the next week or weeks will hold. We have, there have been so many things in our lives that have been turned upside down. So many of your lives have been turned upside down. We have no idea what's coming in, from one day to the next. But you and I are called with Abraham to look at the cross and see God's proof that the promise will hold tomorrow too. And the promise will hold next month too. The promise will hold in a doctor's office. It is going to hold at a graveside. And it's going to hold when the bank account is low. And it's going to count when you're alone. It's going to count in all of whatever tomorrow holds. When you're tired and you say, God, I cannot keep waking up in the middle of the night. I can't keep doing this. God, I'm so exhausted. I don't know what to do. Why don't you answer my prayers? The promise is still going to hold. Abram says, look with me at the cross. You see, ultimately, everything in the the Old Testament, but here in this moment when we are called by faith we're called by look to look forward to a son that's going to come and that's going to rescue abram is like one day the seed is going to save me jesus is the seed and so let's look with abram at jesus and see god's proof maybe today you need to write down that that quote i will god i will measure your heart by the cross and your power by the resurrection today maybe you need to write it down put it in your car maybe you need to put it on your refrigerator and say, God, today, or maybe you'll just say, God, in this minute, I will measure your heart by the cross and I will measure your power by the resurrection. God, give me eyes to look at the cross again to see your proof that your promises are going to hold even if everything else gives way. This this idea of looking at the cross for proof of God's promises is going, to, is going to be the weapon in your battle this week. Is to simply look again. So this passage calls us to respond to God's plan and to God's proof. But what about this week when you're defeated? When you go into this week and you, you realize, oh, I would forgot. I forgot again, and I looked at the giant, I looked at the battle, I looked at the worries, I looked away again. Where is the hope for me? With Abram, we are called to look to Jesus one more time and believe that it is credited as righteousness just because we believe. 
So this passage calls us to respond to God's plan and God's proof. I want you to imagine with me this week what might change. What might change in the middle of the night with a child, with her baby, with medical pain, with whatever the, with worries, with whatever it is, in the middle of the night when you wake up again. But you are reminded that the Son of God was cut as proof of God's promise in my life. Imagine what happens in that moment in the middle of the night. Maybe the house doesn't feel quite so empty. I want you to imagine with me what happens this week when the, when the worry creeps back in. And you go, God, how are we going to make it through? Prices are rising. My income's not following. The bills are piling up. God, how can we... Imagine what changes when in, in that moment you can look to the cross and say, God was cut as proof of his promise. Imagine, imagine what happens in our church when our confidence is not in getting things right, calibrating this program, doing this thing just right. Imagine what changes in our church when our confidence is the fact that together, day after day and week after week, we get to come alongside each other saying, let's look at the cross together. I know this is hard. I don't know what's on the other side of this door, but I do know that there is a cross that promises that God's promises will hold through that door too. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we get to walk with Abram but we get the benefit of looking back at Jesus and the cross, whereas he had to look forward to it. God, I pray that we would be a community pointing our, each other to the proof that your promises will hold. In Jesus' name, amen.